Hello, I'm Rebecca Castellino, and this is Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to talking to artists on the fringes of the Canadian art scene. Sonali Menezes is an interdisciplinary artist based in Hamilton, Ontario. She holds an honors BA in studio art from the University of Guelph and is the youngest of triplets. Sonali's work uses performance, video, zines, sculpture, printmaking, poetry, and sometimes exorbitant amounts of Manwich tomato sauce. Her work reflects her resistance to the histories of colonialism and racialization within which she is interwoven. Our conversation was recorded in Tecoronto on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee, Huron-Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations. Well, hello, Sonali. Hey, Rebecca. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. In lockdown, but good. Where are you right now? I'm at my parents' place, sort of on the border of North York and Scarborough, but otherwise I'm usually in Hamilton, but I've decided to quarantine here for a bit. And you see that going till the fall? What does your next couple months look like? I have absolutely no idea, (laughs) but I've been really enjoying my time with my family, and it's nice to sort of live in a little bit of a community sense as opposed to live in my young professional life or whatever in my apartment by myself so (laughs) it's like more of a sense of stability when you have a family unit to cook and live with (laughs) yes and to cook for it that's true I've been really enjoying cooking so cooking and baking it's so nice cooking for other people makes it so much more special it really does. And it's actually, make, it's really making me like reevaluate my lifestyle a little bit. Mm. Uh, to sort of be like, why, why am I not eating with people more? Why am I not cooking for people more? Why am I so busy that I eat frozen pizzas all the time? Like <laughs> Capitalism. Um, yeah, just it's like thinking about capitalism. Yeah. Do you want to describe your practice a bit for anybody who hasn't seen your work before? Sure. It's so funny when I talk about my practice, I do so many different things (laughs) that sort of get put into two different streams. And I'm trying to sort of reconcile these two streams because I don't really know what to make of them or why they're separate or if I should keep them separate or if I should merge them. I don't know. So I would say I've got like one stream of art making that is performative. It involves video and my body It involves some sculpture and is, I would say, very personal generally to my body and my life experience and my sexuality. And then I have another stream, which is sort of this project I started in 2015, which was essentially a a money-making project to help me pay for my cat's insulin (laughs) when she got diabetes. And so that is resin jewelry and prints and zines, patches, tote bags. So I sort of have this one stream of stuff that I sell to make money. And then this other stream of art making that is more for me that I don't really make any money on at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you see them colliding aesthetically? Because you use glitter throughout your practice, a lot of food and like hardcore feminist theory. 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think definitely the feminist themes and the glitters come throughout. Mm -hmm. I've been contemplating, like, bringing my zines and some of my prints over to the other side of my art practice and not considering it just a thing that I do at zine fairs or markets. Mm -hmm. And I've been considering eliminating the jewelry and the tote bags and the patches part. But it's also a lot of fun to make. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you think that you could see the jewelry and the tote bags and stuff as art objects or they just don't exist so much in that world for you? I think they could. Like, I think I could see them as art objects. I don't know if they've been received as art objects, if Mm. that makes sense. I think they keep being received more as sort of Etsy products. Do you think that's the display? So it being on an Etsy page versus on a gallery page for sale, you know? Yeah, potentially. Totally potentially. There's an artist from Sound Drama member at that I also used to work at, and I started selling my zines in the front shop area, which was funny because they actually kept getting swiped from the <laughs> shop area. People kept on shoplifting them, oh which I'm like, I want to take as a compliment. Like, I want to be like, sure, that's, that's great. But also, that costs money to print. Yeah. But I think that was sort of me trying to think about my zines in sort of a gallery setting. But, yeah, I don't know. How does your work look within an institution versus outside of an institution? The sort of weirder art that I make that is performative or video, I think really needs a gallery space to be seen. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it exists outside of a gallery, really. And so, like, I think the intention is for it to be in a gallery and to be displayed in a gallery or some sort of art space. But then my other work, because they're objects, they can be sort of held and crinkled and folded and what have you. They can sort of exist anywhere. I was just (laughs) wondering how you think of it, your own art practice and how, how you're looking at the objects. But it's interesting how you're talking about how people receive it. Because I think that's where I get really confused because I can never predict how people are going to receive an object. I don't have this desire per se for those pieces to be perceived as like art objects. Mm -hmm. I'm happy when they find a home and when people like them. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter if people are artists who are appreciating them as art objects or just people who like the objects and want to have them. Yeah, and right now, all of those sort of objects I I sell under the banner of Glittering Magpie, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like my little business distro. And right now, all of the sales from Glittering Magpie are actually going to Capit Basig, which is a a mutual aid support group being run for um, Filipino migrant workers um, by a number of different organizations in Canada. And I've just been thinking about, like, using Glittering Magpie, seeing as I've, like, I ha- I do have work um, that generates income for me. I don't really need to also be running a little business and to have that work just generating funds for various organizations, potentially, moving forward. I feel like a lot of zines do that. Like, their their proceeds go towards different community organizations. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's where you find the value in contributing your work to the community and having your work in people's homes? Or did you come at it from the more economic standpoint? There have been times when I have really, really relied on that income pretty Mm -hmm. heavily. So 
when I was in school, a market might generate for me maybe 500 or $700. And I needed that money for rent, (laughs) you know, and I like needed that money to pay for my cat's insulin. And Mm -hmm. so like, I really needed that money. And so I was really making things to make money. And then after I left school, I didn't have work. And again, I really needed that money to like do groceries and buy my prescriptions. But then once I found full-time work, I left Glittering Magpies fall to the wayside a bit and I stopped doing as many markets and I just sort of had my Etsy running. And I think, and then that's where I, I really started finding joy just in people connecting with the things I was making. And yeah, so I think it just morphed a little bit. I think my favorite connections are with people who have read my zines. Like I'll get the occasional Instagram message from like someone in the States who will be like, oh, your zine was in the zine library at my university. And I saw your Instagram handle and I had to reach out to you to tell you how much I liked your zine. And like, I had no idea that my zine was in this zine library in the States somewhere at this university. That was so exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I like those sorts of connections, I think. And then meeting people at zine fairs who are like, I have all your zines. And like, I've been following your zines since you've been making them. And I, every time you have a new zine, I get a new one. And that makes me feel really good. That's so lovely. Do you find that the zine community in Hamilton, Guelph, Toronto, that that is a very stable community for you in terms of making those connections and, and people following your practice and, and that kind of care? I think so, for sure. I, I definitely think so. Um, the zine community is so unique. I used to joke that going to a zine fair is like seeing everyone that you've talked to on a dating app whose message you never responded to. But we obviously had something major in common, and that was zines. So, yeah. Do you find that kind of community, you can create that in the more fine art world, or it's a different kind of community there? I definitely think my sense of community really comes from the DIY art making experience. Mm -hmm. And I can't really say that I've like forayed far enough into the fine art world to say that I, I feel I have a strong community in that yet, at least. But maybe I'm just so committed to DIY art making and zines and sort of indie stuff that that's where I, I find my community. Mm-hmm. How did you find being in a fine art school context then? Or is that how you found the DIY community? I mean, school is so unique because you already have an instant community because everyone is sort of taking the same courses and striving towards the same goals. And you're either like all supporting each other or competing with each other and trying to cut each other down. I like to think that the case at Guelph at least was the first and that we were all supporting each other. (laughs) But yeah, I think I found some of the DIY stuff outside of that and existing outside of institutions and really coming from like markets and fairs. Was your first market the Guelph Night Market? No, my first market was actually the Hamilton Feminist Zine Fair, which it's like I haven't been doing it for that long. That was in 2014, so six years ago. Yeah. And so I was really sad with the pandemic that the zine fair was canceled this year um, because I really like that zine fair. Do you see digital versions of zine fairs popping up or they've just been flat out canceled? I've seen a couple on Instagram. I think the New York City feminist zine fair, they're doing some sort of online fair. Mm -hmm. I have seen a couple other art book fairs that have sort of popped up online. 
But of course, it's not the same. The nature of zines is very physical, right? Mm -hmm. And being able to pick things up and flip through them and put them down and get your fingerprints on them. Uh, So, yeah, I don't know. I think there's definitely during this time, a lot of people will be leaning towards digitizing their work. I have. I've digitized a couple of my zines and made them available as digital zines for the first time, which was something that previously I, I felt very differently about. Yeah, but for me, the joy of zines is is very physical. Yeah, I don't know. No, for me too. I think also the way that people set up their tables and seeing people decked out in all their gear. Button makers usually have a vest on covered in their buttons. For me, that's so important, seeing the artists or or seeing whoever their friend tabling for them. It's so nice. Oh, it is. It is really so nice. And I miss that. And I'm, I'm I'm trying to think about, like, when will we be able to do that again? How long will this period last and when will we be able to gather in large groups and like hundreds of people together again? I don't mm-hmm. know. I think also there's a possibility, and this is probably happening, I'm, I'm just not aware of it, of zines sort of returning back to their roots in the mail. I'm hoping, I don't know, but I'm hoping that people are sort of returning to that and, and mailing out their zines or doing trades of zines through the mail. That's how I've yeah. always done it, um, through the mail. Also, Canada's so big. Like, if you want to trade with someone from the prairies, you have to mail it to them. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true, which is, I think, why I I enjoy having my zines on Etsy. I have a zine that I need to mail out to London, like London, England. Mm -hmm. uh, And so that's exciting when I get to mail a zine to another country, I think. That's the most exciting. Where's the furthest you've mailed a zine? Oh, I'm really bad with distances. I actually (laughs) mail... I mail to the UK quite often. Mm-hmm. My biggest sales are, all, of course, to Canada and the US. I actually sell to the US more than I do within Canada. Weird. For whatever, I, I don't know why. I've also mailed stuff to Switzerland, Germany, Mexico, a few other countries. I love how far <laughs> your zines have gone, like that, that reach. Yeah, me too. It is really, really exciting. Yeah, and so I think that's very rewarding for me just to share my work. And, like, the nature of zines is that I just want to share the content in my zines. I'm not really trying to make money off of my zines. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to really recuperate my printing costs and the cost of mailing. Yeah, I think that's clear in your subject matter. Like, I'm thinking of So You're Anxious as Fuck. Like, that's such a, a toolkit for people. Mm-hmm. And that so that zine I actually digitized at the beginning of quarantine. And I wanted to make it available for free, but Etsy doesn't let you put anything up for free. I have it for sale for 30 cents. <laughs> I've sold, I think, 88 copies. Wow. I've had a lot of feedback from people who are like, thank you so much for this, or like, I really needed this. So that zine is a self-help zine. And so I've I've just been happy to share that. And that's actually the zine that kept on getting stolen from this artist-run center. <laughs> but I, I was like, okay, I think people are just too anxious to buy it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be too anxious to steal it. <laughs> this week's podcast recommendation explores queer history outside of Ontario. Hosts Phelan Johnson and Leah Simone Bowen from The Secret Life of Canada tell the story of the Golden Boy statue in Winnipeg. Check out Season 2, Episode 13, 
from the Secret Life of Canada, wherever you get your podcasts. Does that lead into the new writing practice that that you're doing? I think so, potentially. It's interesting because when I was in high school, I actually did a lot of writing. And I was sort of toying between the idea of going to school for creative writing or going to school for like fine art. Mm -hmm. And I took a year off after high school to sort of consider that and figure out where I wanted to go. Um, And then I chose the fine art. So I think just during this time, I've just been reading more than I have otherwise. And it's just given me a desire to return to writing a little bit and just to explore that and see what's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I've been writing some poetry and I've started I've started my very first short story since high school and I'm writing that out. It was actually a story from my childhood that I was trying to incorporate into a poem. And then the poem didn't really give the story justice. So I decided just to start formulating it into a short story so we'll see where that goes I would like to submit it to something and then potentially make it into a zine I don't know Mm -hmm. and what's the process been like for writing how is it different than your usual making process well it's different in that I'm sitting at a computer Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so it feels a little bit different than being in a studio making a print But then again, like when I make video, 80% of the video making is in the post-production on the computer anyways. So a fair bit of it is at the computer. But I think the writing, I can make other art in the company of other people. Mm -hmm. But when I'm writing, I need to be like totally alone. Mm. Like I don't even want anyone to look at me. Like I have to close (laughs) my bedroom door and be like, no one look at me. No one talk to me. So I think that is that difference. I think you isolating yourself even more during isolation to do like the solitary act of writing is is kind of poetic. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it is because you're not also going to art galleries or consuming zines and then we're all on the internet reading everything and and consuming a lot more written material? Do you think that was the the switch for you or was very much having quarantine and having more time to read books? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's also I had decided in January, I made a commitment to myself to like, take my job less seriously, Mm. and my art more seriously. And so I started applying for things. And I started working more on my art intentionally. And I think a part of that was I wanted to commit to writing as well. And I want to be less embarrassed about sharing my poetry. (laughs) and feel more open about sharing it. I also do want to try and find ways to incorporate it into my print practice, like my printmaking practice. Mm. Do you see yourself illustrating it or more so like once you get into the studio, you can start understanding how that would look? I think I I actually want to just like experiment with, with just printing the poems mm. on different materials. And then also finding ways to incorporate that in a gallery setting as like vinyl text. Yeah. So when you're brainstorming, you do see your work existing in the gallery if you're thinking about pieces? Yeah, it is true. I do. Do you think it's a different mindset? Like you have to consider it for the white cube versus making something that's going to be presented on on a table? Hmm. I think I, I think about it in 
in maybe both contexts. Mm. Like I think about it as a, existing as a print or existing as a print in a zine. But then I also think about it as maybe vinyl text in a gallery. Maybe that's like a conceptual brain. You picture it in like four different mediums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's the struggle, I guess, of being like maybe what we would call like an interdisciplinary artist. You're sort of like, you always have to choose your discipline, mm-hmm, kind of. Mm-hmm. Like, where should this exist? How should it exist? How should I make it um, come into being? And then also trying to find a justification for that choice. Like, why did you choose at this time? And why isn't it existing some somewhere else as something else? Yeah. And that gets into what you feel your role as an artist is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just thinking about it, this like really critical time where we're looking at police brutality, black liberation, anti-racism, indigenous sovereignty. Yeah. And then also in the middle of a pandemic, what does how are we going to emerge from this and what will society look like? And what is the role of the artist in this? We see what the role of the artist is under capitalism, but what would the role of the artist be in another system potentially that's not capitalism? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then also, are we making art for personal gain for private profit or are we making art for our community? Could we make art to support social movements? which I feel is so hard because I think in the art world, and I think maybe you and I have spoken about this, where like a lot of my work has been political. And I I struggled with that a lot when I was in university because I don't feel like it was very well sort of accepted by the faculty at least. Yeah. I had a faculty member who asked me to stop making political work. And she said that politics were explored in art in the 60s and have since her words have have since been resolved. <laughs> and I was like, "What politics has been resolved? We now live in an apolitical world since the sixties. Maybe she lives in an apolitical world." And I was like, so confused. Wow. And I continued making political work, and she wasn't very pleased with me, and didn't give me very good grades. But I think there's that struggle between like, okay, are you an artist or are you an activist? Or can you be both? Can we activate art? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In some ways, I feel like being called to be an artist is in some ways being called to be an activist. But I do see artists as serving their community. And I understand that that's not a model that everybody subscribes to. But in Mm -hmm. this moment, I don't know how you can be an artist and not be making work for your community. I know that there are some people who are, are treating this time almost like a residency and people are, some people are being very productive and producing a lot of work, but then there are a lot of people who are sort of immobilized like myself and, and are not necessarily making a ton of work Yeah, uh, and are trying and sort of questioning their role in terms of like, how am I making art or why am I making art or who am I making art for? Or how can I make art that like su- support something larger than myself in at this critical time? Mm-hmm. I think artists struggling with their health or mental illness, like in lockdown, should never feel the need to turn this into a residency. Like I think right. that's that's such an ableist concept during a pandemic that you would have the energy and the time and like the bandwidth to be making. You know, like, totally. But and I think it's so hard because when I meet people or virtually (laughs) and uh, they're like, what have you been up to? And it's like, you need to sort of justify what you've 
been up to. Um, you know, and it's just like, if you're not baking bread, like, what are you doing? (laughs) I mean, I am baking bread. (laughs) I actually stopped baking bread for quarantine because I got mad that people took my thing. (laughs) (laughs) But that's just me being salty for the sake of being salty. Like, of course, everyone should be making lovely bread for themselves. No, it is. I am learning so much about pleasure through bread. Mm. Like, yeah, it's so much about pleasure through bread and like the process of making it, of listening it to it crackle while it yes. cools, and also just like eating warm carbs and mm-hmm. like filling your belly with warm carbs is like the best feeling ever. I think that that like people who say that they aren't doing anything, I always ask them what they actually did because I'm more interested in people like spending four hours like trimming their plants because they're bored or learning how to make sourdough like it's it's these moments of boredom that I think are or stress what you do during times of stress are are interesting and and people turn to comfort and pleasure and for me that's that's like a form of art in itself you know it's true it's true I something that I've thought about mainly probably just after being in unhealthy relationships with cis men (laughs) is I'm really hoping that at least the cis heterosexual men out there are taking this time to like learn domestic tasks. Yes. You yes. know, and like really value cooking or ironing or doing laundry, especially if they have been previously relying on unpaid gendered labor of their partners or their mothers mm-hmm. or I'm like, I have this feeling like I just really am putting out this energy in the world that I'm hoping that this is what's happening. (laughs) You know? What are you hopeful about for the art community after and and during all of these crises happening? I'm hopeful that whatever models of care that we're sort of following right now or this, this understanding that like we need each other to survive, I'm hoping that that sort of continues to be fostered in the art world. Yeah. And that we continue to support each other. And I think also, I really, really want to see art institutions, galleries, artist-run centers really evaluate who they're serving and what they're doing and why they're doing it and interrogate their whiteness, you know, like very critically, meaningfully, and figure out what communities they're serving, who are the artists they're supporting, and why are they doing that? And for the most part, predominantly, why are they all white? Yeah. Before all of this happened, what was your sense of why those institutions and artist-run centers existed? Because you've worked at a couple of them and, like, been on the inside. I think I definitely, just like in any workplace I'm ever in, I struggle because I think I'm definitely more left-leaning than the organizations I enter into. Mm -hmm. (laughs) like always and so I always have to reel myself in a fair bit and sort of keep my mouth shut and sort of follow my job description or what I'm being told Mm -hmm. and so like that would be the same if I'm in the service industry or if I'm in the cultural sector like it doesn't really change yeah that experience so I I would say that that experience didn't really change at in artist run center that makes me so frustrated though because artist spaces are supposed to be spaces for conversation so like you're being hired to add to that space so why shouldn't your politics like 
be adding to the conversation, you know? Yeah, but I, and I think it's so complicated, right? Because, like, I mean, we can definitely look in the, the sort of artist run center, nonprofit sector, and, and see how little job security there is. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a young woman like myself, mm-hmm. like you don't have any job security. Mind you, no, no one has any job security and young people have no job security in those settings. And you're really working contract to contract or you're working a contract without an end date with the understanding that they only have money to pay you for three more months. Mm-hmm. And so you do, sometimes you need to decide like, okay, am I going to open my mouth and be confrontational about this one issue? Or am I going to keep my mouth shut and like continue to pay rent? Mm-hmm, for sure. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's this sort of dance of trying to figure out what you're going to do. I find it so saddening just because I know a lot of those art workers, like ourselves, are also practicing artists, right? And we do have something to add to the conversation. But I guess it's, it's less valued when you're, when you're being paid to be the guest service liaison. They wa- don't want to know about your politics. And so much of it is also about white comfort, Mm. right? Like white people want to enter into a gallery and feel comfortable. Like they don't want to feel confronted. Or challenged. Or challenged. So like if you're presenting challenging work, they might not come back. Yeah. That's the communities that most art galleries are serving. Yeah, I think... Like for me, going into OCAD and starting to work with bigger institutions, like proposing too queer of programming is something that can happen. And I didn't realize that was a thing. Mm, (laughs) Like you have to pander to straight people because straight people are the majority. Yeah, totally. It's odd to think about the art world as pandering to like straight white people, but the longer I hang out in it, the more that seems to be the pattern. No, it really is. So I think I'm just like hoping through this that like institutions look more critically at themselves and their functioning and who they're serving. And I hope that as arts communities, we can hold these institutions accountable and say like, hey, like, look at all of us who are being excluded. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you're not serving us. Yeah, maybe this is the beginning of that conversation. Yeah. My big fear is that we're going to exit this pandemic when at whatever point um social distancing measures are lifted or there's a vaccine and I'm really afraid that we're going to enter into a really tight period of austerity and a lot of funding is going to be cut and I'm I'm really hoping that that doesn't happen or that we mobilize ourselves enough to prevent that from happening yeah do you want to talk about your Doug Ford is for Austerity poster? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a, a silkscreen print that just says, Stop Ford, Fight Austerity. And it's so funny. It just makes me think about memes that have been circulating about Doug Ford. And Doug Ford says that he's against defunding the police, but he's for defunding education, <laughs> funding all social services, you know. And it's, it's really funny that contradiction I really have this desire to get into the print studio and start making prints about this and maybe that's my function right now and that's sort of how I see my art moving forward is like I want to I want to make political prints yeah 
do you draw from that history of politicized art? Because I feel like the DIY zine scene, it is very much about circulating important information. It really is. This is what I struggle with a lot. I facilitate a zine club with a friend out of Hamilton. I think like when I think about zines, I think politics right away. I think I look at the political history of zines, the way zines have been mobilized. But a lot of young zinesters right now are not making political work. Hmm. And so out of all the, the zine members that we have in our club, no one's really making politicized work. I have this deep desire to really like really politicize the zine scene more intensely. <laughs> Maybe with the birth of the internet and memes, everything's kind of a lot quicker and zines you have to like sit down and read them. I find people don't have as much patience. Yeah, our attention spans and our patience, like at least mine is so much narrower than it used to be. I definitely think endless scrolling has impacted that to some extent, for sure. But we're relying so much on sort of like really instant, quick educational materials through Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And I think there's so much great educational work that comes out of social media. But to really complexly understand capitalism or to understand black liberation, I think that a lot of folks, we do need to do more reading if that's possible. Mm -hmm. They're more complex than a tweet, you know, or the issue is more complex than like a graphic on Instagram. And some of that work is really, really deep to understand like, at least for myself, I need, I do need to spend more time with educational materials. And I think that there is a place for theory. And there's like a lot of hope in theory. And that informs all of the actions that are taking place right now. And it makes it makes me really want to like, find ways to sort of compress theory into zines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to like make that more readily available. Well, I I like how you're pushing for zines to be more political. I'm on board with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I really wish there was some sort of coalition of political zine makers somewhere that I could like connect with. Do you think that makers have become less political? Like how your prof was saying that was a movement reserved for the 60s? I think so. I think it's also, at least when I think about like, artist-run centers, the funding models for them. Yeah. Um, When you think about how much money will come maybe from the Ontario Arts Council or the Canada Council, and you can't come out and publicly denounce Doug Ford, for example, because Mm -hmm. that could jeopardize your funding. And so it's, I think it's literally built in to our institutions to be depoliticized. Thanks for listening to Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to the fringes of the Canadian art scene. If you have an artist you would like to hear interviewed, would like to correct slash fact check a past episode, or would like to chat, feel free to send me a message on Instagram at hoppingthefence or by email at rebeccaecasolino at gmail.com. Thanks to OCAD University for their financial support, my project supervisor, Amish Morell, for his advice and guidance, and Claudia Slogar-Rick for all of her extra help. Original artwork for Hopping the Fence by Alex Gregory. 
original music by Jessica Price Eisner. Thanks so much. Bye.